On a windy Egyptian morning this spring, the world was reminded just how precarious the global supply chain can be. Shortly after midnight on March 23rd, one of the world's largest ships arrived at the southern end of the Suez Canal, a narrow 120-mile man-made ribbon that cuts across Egypt to connect Europe and Asia. The Ever Given measured a quarter mile long and weighed 200,000 tons. It was carrying more than 18,000 containers from Malaysia to the Netherlands. Visibility was low when the Ever Given entered the canal at 7.18 a.m. as strong, dusty winds gusted more than 45 miles per hour. As those winds pushed it toward the canal's eastern bank, the fast-moving ship slid back near the west bank and straightened. But it was more difficult to steer in the shallow water at the canal's edge. And when the ship began to swing clockwise again, the pilots were unable to stop it. By 7.43, the mega container ship had run aground, with its bow lodged on the east bank and its stern resting against the west bank. The canal was completely blocked. The six-day blockage had a tremendous impact on global commerce. More than 450 ships waited on either side of the busy shipping route that handles 13% of world trade. BBC News reported the number of delayed shipments totaled $6.7 million per minute, and one analysis said the blockage could bring down annual global trade growth by 0.2 to 0.4%. Consumers, retailers, and manufacturers all felt this new kink in the supply chain that brought fresh delays to a shipping industry already clogged by pandemic-induced container shortages. This incident shines renewed focus on just how many goods are shipped around the world and how fragile those routes can be. Given the shipping industry's importance in the U.S., our planners must have world-class tools to prevent a comparable disaster from congesting American waterways. Since the late 1980s, Erdic has operated a ship simulator for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to model the maneuverability of large ships through our nation's ports and harbors. Benefiting from Erdic's superior numerical modeling expertise, the simulator precisely models how vessels respond to wind, waves, currents, and other ships. USACE regulations require ERDIC input anytime a federally mandated channel is modified and the ship simulator has modeled every major U.S. harbor, including Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. As newer ships navigate through aging waterways infrastructure, ERDIC gives planners the ability to see potential problems in a virtual environment, modify designs, and retest to come up with the best plans for a given port. Given its years of success in simulating our nation's waterways, the versatile simulator is now being used by the military to plan and train for amphibious operations around the world. Planners can input accurate tidal information produced by validated Erdic numerical models and other environmental parameters to test the navigability and feasibility of conducting an operation. When paired with Erdic ground vehicle modeling technology, Erdic can incorporate all floating traffic patterns to enable ship-to-shore mission rehearsal with one tool. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of Erdic. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Keith Martin, 
a research physicist at Erdik's Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory and lead for the Ship Simulator program. We will talk with Keith about how Erdik is enabling safer waterways, better and more efficient port designs, and more precise military operations planning. Hey, Keith, good to see you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Glad to do it. Yeah, good to have you, Keith. So I think we should start off by painting a picture of what the ship simulator is like. Can you give the listeners a little bit of info about what the experience of walking through the ship simulator is like? Um, it's pretty much like being on a ship. Once you get up into the middle of the, of the room, surrounded by 65-inch TV screens, you can't see anything but what's on the screen. And so all you see is a, is a view of the ocean or harbor and the front of the ship that you're, you're actually on. And so once we turn on waves and different environmentals, I mean, we can convince you that the room is turning on its side. So I've heard it's so realistic that people actually get seasick in there, even though the floor doesn't move. Is that right? Absolutely. There was actually a former director one time who came through the lab and we were on a demo and he stopped outside and explained to me that it was more than my job was worth than to turn the waves on for that simulator. <laughs> it's cool. It's so realistic. It really is. Like you said. We've had people in there who actually operate ships that respond smaller craft and we asked them, well, do you need the box that actually has hydraulics and moves a lot? And they said, no, this is plenty realistic for what we do. That, that's awesome. How did Eric become involved with this and with ship simulation? And how did you come to be involved in this? I mean, simulation has been around a while as far as the technology, just from the standpoint that's been used to train ship handlers. Erdic and at the time West didn't get involved. I think an engineer in the navigation branch saw the power of that probably in the late 70s and started trying to get it there and fought for it. And our first um, study was actually done in 1980. And so Eric has been involved in it since the 80s. I came on board, I was actually a numerical modeler by trade. I mean, I was working with the simulator as far as I was providing the, the current databases to them, but I was doing numerical modeling in estuaries and rivers and what have you, and, and I was asked by a division chief if I would slide over because the current director of that program was getting ready to retire, and they needed coverage, and they wanted somebody they could basically do some mentoring so that there was a seamless transition, if you will. How long have you been involved with it? Since 2012. So it'll be, it'll be nine years in October. Wow. And I know this is a long been an institution here at Arctic. I actually grew up in Vicksburg and came to visit the ship simulator on a field trip in high school. And I don't want to say how long ago that was, but it's been a little while. So this is this is something that we've been working on for a very long time. Absolutely. I mean, we make all the tours, but um, we've done every harbor and river you can think of in the country. It includes Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, um, the Mississippi River, the Chafalaya River. That kind of leads me into our next question, Keith. What kind of projects do you undertake on both the civil works and the military sides? So from the civil works sides, I mean, there's, there's two different types of civil works projects. There's, an, there's inland studies, which means basically your rivers, your Mississippi, your Columbia River, what have you. Then you have your other studies, which are the coastal st studies for harbors, you know, Norfolk Harbor, New York Harbor, what have you. Everything's done in support of, of testing channel designs. You have to test a design once it has been um, proposed. And we do that by actually putting that design into the database and then implementing the simulator and then bringing pilots from the area and navigating that area. Now, and again, there's a difference between, the, between inland and coastal because, you know, inland you're dealing with tow pilots. And a tow pilot, he could work anywhere in the country. You know, harbor pilots, you know, Charleston pilots only work in Charleston. Mm. Same thing with like Port of Long Beach, only Port of Long Beach pilots. So, 
and so I guess the whole idea is just making sure that these designs, that the ships can fit in the design, that we talked at the beginning of the show about what happened in the Suez Canal, but to make sure that something like that isn't happening, whether because you've got bigger ships or new designs. And, and I mean, that's kind of what you all are looking at, right? Right. I mean, you know, I had a, a colonel come through one time and ask, well, they don't do this with highways. Well, the highway doesn't move under you. So, I mean, you can put two cars side by side and, okay, well, this fits. You know, I don't have to worry about the wind pushing the car into the other lane or anything like that. You know, in a harbor, you know, the water, you have the water uh, moving, you have the wind pushing on the ship. If a ship passes another ship, then there's interaction there that affects the, the size of that channel. And the same thing when you get into a turning basin, you know, that the ship's trying to turn at the same time it's being pushed by wind, it's being pushed by current. So those all come into play. What unique capabilities does Erdic offer in ship simulation? It's the people. We have this institutional knowledge. I mean, it's, it's passed down through en- um, engineers as they come on board. So the, the knowledge is held on to. So that kind of experience doesn't exist anywhere in the country. And I guess in addition to that, I guess the things that you can do in-house as far as building the title information, the current information, the numerical modeling and whatnot, that gives you a lot more capabilities, correct? Absolutely. Everything is done in-house with one exception, and that will change soon. We do not build our own ship models. Those have to be actually contracted out, but we've hired a naval architect, and once he's been appropriately trained, he'll be able to operate the software and build ships for us, and then everything will be done in-house. And that includes, like, the, you, say you, have, so you have three databases. You have the visuals you see, so those are built, you know, by us going out and taking pictures and, and building those within a piece of software to build those objects that go in the visuals. But then the, the environmental databases, which are usually the currents and the tides, and that's done, done in numerical modeler, by numerical modelers who are typically in-house. And then the vessel model itself, and that's, that's where the naval architect comes in play. What is the advantage of being able to do it all in-house? The numerical modelers are familiar with what we need. So your resolution in a numerical model may be different for a ship simulation application versus, say, a sediment application. And so they're familiar with that. If there's a problem, I can walk down the hall and they can rerun the model in pretty short order. And there's not this, this disconnect. In addition to the fact that we, we hold all our own codes that convert those results into simulation format. So you find a solution faster. Right. So if you're going to sum up why the ship simulator research matters, why this effort is important, what would you say? It's important for two ways. It makes us good stewards of taxpayer dollars because it makes it so that we can produce a channel that is usable by the mariner, but it also, we don't over-design it or build it too big, and which would cost more money. So it's a, it's a money thing, but it's also a safety thing. When you have two ships passing each other that are almost a quarter of a mile long, um, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, if they hit each other or they hit something on the bank or they get the side torn open and they're leaking fuel and other kinds of things into the environment, those are all really bad things. So it's a safety issue as well. Erdick does research on both the civil works and military sides, and this is one of the best examples we have of a project that started on the civil works side but now has broad military applications. Can you talk about First of all, how that came to be, how the military side started to kind of get going, and how much work you all do now on the military side. It started with a demo or a briefing to a gentleman from the Marine Corps. And actually, I didn't even give that briefing. The first I'd actually heard of it was they said, hey, you have a meeting with Rhonda Taylor from UROC. I think it was UROC at the time. She wants to talk about a project she wants you to do. And it was there that, that she told us that the Marine Corps intelligence activity wanted us to do a proof of concept study with ship simulation in relation to amphibious operations. So that's, that's kind of how we got started. And then we worked with the Marine Corps to develop 
that project and to do a, an unclassified amphibious landing in Anchorage, Alaska. What are the kind of projects, what kind of things are, can you all do, capabilities and whatnot on the military side? So we can do the amphibious craft, so we can go from ship to shore. We can do skin to skin, which means brings two ships together that are touching or almost touching. We can do well deck operations. So that means there's actually a, a Navy ship with a smaller ship inside of it. And then that ship exits or enters that ship, and it will affect how the, the bigger ship handles based on whether the ship is inside the well deck or outside the well deck. We can do um, ship to shore in the sense of a connector. So it's either the, the Army Modular Causeway System or the improved Navy Liar System. Th- those are some of the things we can do. Why does ship simulation matter for the military? If you go back and look at the transition from World War II to Korea, we were very successful in Korea because you're your operators for amphibious landings were well-versed in that because of the island-hopping campaigns, the Pacific and what have you. And there's, so there's lots of knowledge there and experience in doing those kinds of things and planning those kinds of operations. It's over 70 years since we landed in Inchon. Mm-hmm. That institutional knowledge is gone. And so now we, ha- we have to be able to provide the, the mariner, the craft operator, with the experience of landing someplace he's never been before and providing him as the best physics we can so that when he does get dropped there, he's got an idea of the range of the conditions he would face. But it's also a tool as well because the, the commander or the planner can be in the room while we're doing these, these exercises and use the data from them to actually develop the plan and then use that as a, as a risk assessment tool to decide, okay, based on what I see on the conditions today and what this operational plan from SIP simulation is telling me, I can decide whether to go or not to go. So that's really the, the two key areas. And we talked about how much of this you can do in-house. That is obviously advantageous, enables you to do more on the military side as well, correct? Absolutely. And it enables us to control security. So nothing, there's no outside actors, if you will. Everything's done by our, our personnel. And you are looking to expand your military work with the proposed new building. Is that right? Can you tell us a little more about that? Correct. There's a, there's a proposal within headquarters right now to build a, a building right next to the current Coastal Hydraulics Laboratory that will house eight bridges. So it goes from, currently we have three bridges. It goes from three. Now we can op- actually operate eight, possibly 11 if you add the, add the two together. And that comes into play when you're talking about larger operations like JLOTS operations or LOTS operations, which for those who don't know, you know, LOTS is logistics over the shore and then JLOTS is joint logistics over the shore. And for those who aren't familiar, the term, when you say the term bridge, you mean like each individual simulator, right? Right. So for each bridge, you can have one vessel or a craft. So yeah, that would go from being able to just do three, we could go up to 11. How much are some of the newer warfare doctrines like joint all-domain operations kind of driving the need for increased ship simulation? And this is, you're, you're, you're starting to move into an area that I'm a little unfamiliar with because as far as military policy or military doctrine, but it's my understanding that anything we do in the future is going to require our forces to operate jointly, the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force. And so this is, this is a tool to enable them to look at those kinds of things where, say, the Army and the Marine Corps are, are landing in the same place, and the Navy's providing support, if you will. So that, it's a powerful tool for that. It just allows so much mission rehearsal. Correct. I mean, that's, that's the first thing, is that, is that we use the tool to develop the plan. And the plan is, it's not, oh, we're going to do it exactly this way, under these exact conditions, because you don't know what the sea's going to be doing that day or what the weather's going to be doing that day. 
but it's a way for us to develop a plan based on a range of possibilities that could occur. And then once you have those things developed, you've run those simulations and those are now saved, then you could actually go back and based on the conditions, then use those, those same files to do rehearsals. I guess the people who are going to be involved in the operation can, can again, rehearse it and, and just be so familiar, take some of that uncertainty away you know, before the operation itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, and that goes back to, you know, the way we did it back in World War II was we did actually live exercises. So they would try to find a beach that was similar to the one they were going to land on and then do the landing there with actual craft and actual personnel. Well, that's a, that's a lot of money and there is risk involved. And again, you're at the mercy of the weather that day. So if we get in a simulator and say, okay, this is the range of conditions we want to test and we think we could face, then it enables us to control it in a laboratory environment while at the same time giving them a, a realistic experience. One of the advantages of Arctic is the ability to pull experts from a variety of disciplines and apply them to a single effort. How much has this benefited Arctic ship simulation? Have you taken advantage of that? So, I mean, the first piece is actually the numerical modelers. So, you know, we have numerical models, subject matter experts, we have ship simulation experts. Uh, when we move into the military now, now we've actually integrated geotechnical structures now. We have the ground vehicle simulator from them and Dr. Gabe Monroe. And so we work across those disciplines as, to get that done. And can you tell us more about that ground vehicles effort? So that, that kind of, it, everything is kind of built on itself. You know, we started with the, the proof of concept study with the Marine Corps, which grew into actually performing actual testing for the Marine Corps for an actual activity, and then grew into, you know, the Office of Research and Technology Transfer saying, hey, we think we could actually improve this and go from not from just from the ship to the shore, but go further to inland objectives if we can tie in a ground vehicle simulator. So that's when we, we reached out to, to Dr. Monroe and then began working on that. And that involved working with the manufacturer for our simulator and having them provide us hooks, if you will. And then um, Gabe's team coming in and writing code from their ground vehicle side that will actually tie into that so that the two simulators could talk and, and exchange information. So that as the craft is coming in with a, a vehicle loaded on it, it's feeding that position back to the ground vehicle simulator. So the guy looking at the ground simulator's window is actually seeing what you see if you were sitting on the vehicle on the ship. And as the ship gets to the beach and drops the ramp, then the control gets passed to the ground vehicle simulator. And so now in the ship simulation side, you're actually watching that vehicle drive off as the ground vehicle guy is driving off. And then he gets on the beach. And once he's on the beach, then he goes forward and goes whatever route they've selected. What is the advantage of that? You were kind of talking the other day about traffic patterns and just kind of, you, it, it allows you to see a, a host of options. So, you know, you, they pick a beach to land on and there's going to be so much, it's usually defined by how long is that beach? You know, is it 500 yards? Is it a thousand yards? And that's the first metric on, okay, based on that length and the bathymetry offshore, we can land this many craft at once. Well, that's all great. Um, depending on how deep the beach is or what its dimensions are, once you get there, you might not want to land every single craft that you've got that can land at one time and roll vehicles off at the same time. Things could bog down, and if you're actually in a forced entry, people are actually shooting at you. So we want that to be as, as efficient as possible. And so it's, not, and it's, it's, it's getting on there and then get them off the beach so the next wave comes in. So it may be that we try to we say, well, we're going to stagger it. Instead of landing five craft at once, we might land three 
And then as those three are extracting, we're landing two more and then three again or something like that just to stagger it so that we efficiently move personnel and equipment onto the beach and then off the beach so the next group can come in. So it allows you to have a complete picture of the exercise instead of multiple pieces. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a seamless thing. Moving back to the civil work side, mm-hmm. you talk more about capabilities that it has. I mean, I understand that we talked about it a little bit at the top. You say it's regulations, state, anytime that there's a modification of a federally regulated waterway, you have to get Erdic's input on that study and, and kind of talk about just, again, the unique capabilities you all offer there. And it's interesting you ask that question because we actually had some congressional staffers in a, a week or so ago. We got asked, this, uh, got asked a question like this. So well, what, what came first, the legislation or, or the, the simulation? Yeah. And uh, the first correction was, was actually not legisla- legislation, it's an engineering regulation. And it's because the Corps of Engineers, we are responsible for the commercial waterways. So we're responsible for the operation and maintenance of them, you know, the dredging and what have you. And any, anything that gets built there, if the Corps doesn't build it, then they actually certainly have to permit. They're in control of it. And so that's how the regulation came to be mm-hmm. because the Corps saw the power of the simulator and what, it's, what it could do because you're taking the user of a project and putting them into that project to give you feedback on, does this work? Is it safe? And, and that kind of thing. And so that's, and that's how, I think that's how it came to be regulation. I can't tell you exactly. I mean, that's, again, that's a, probably a policy decision. I'm not sure who was in, involved in that. You, you just mentioned taking the user in, and that's something we probably haven't spent as much time talking about. I mean, you are, are regularly bringing in ship pilots and whatnot to test the simulator, to validate it, to make sure everything is, is accurate. Absolutely. It's, it's a very unique engineering solution. You know, you don't, if you're going to build a skyscraper, you don't bring in the office assistant or even the guy who's running the company to decide, well, the office should be there and the struck, the load on the beam should be this. You don't do that. I mean, it's, it's not necessary. But actually, in this case, with ship simulation, you're bringing in somebody that's going to use that project every single day under a variety of, of weather conditions and tide conditions and whatnot and makes it, it's, it's a very important thing because it brings everybody in the room. So it's not now it's not just the pilot you're bringing to the room to give you feedback in addition to the data you're collecting, but they're also in the same room with us who've been operating simulators for years as well as the people who designed the project, the Corps of Engineers or the port, and then the Corps representatives if, if they're not the designers. And so decisions can be made while we're doing the testing. So we can modify that design as we go and end up with a design that, that works best, from a, not just from a money, from, from a safety standpoint. And again, it's, it's all it, that's so powerful because you have the user, the, mm-hmm. the pilot being involved in that loop. And you've done the same thing on the military side too, I guess, and having craft masters in and whatnot. Absolutely. It's, it's, a different, it's a different way to do it. I mean, it's still the same thing. You know, when you're talking about a ship pilot, he operates in this place every single day. Um, so he's giving you feedback on a design. We're changing the design. With a craft master or a craft operator, you're getting feedback on this is how you get to the beach. This is what you avoid. This is the area you avoid so you don't end up in trouble. And giving you, you know, very detailed information, not just in text, but sometimes in diagrams on stay away from this area. It'll, it'll do this to your craft and they'll actually draw it out. So, but again, it's, it's feedback that will go, you know, and that's, and I keep saying feedback from the pilots and that's not the only thing that comes out of the simulator. I mean, there's so much data that comes out of it from the, from the position and speed of the ship, as well as anything that affects how that ship moves. So all that data goes back into whether it's a, a civil works decision on 
project or whether it's informing an amphibious plan. I know it's a big team and talk about, again, all the capabilities that they bring. We have visualization experts. So those are people that develop the visuals. We have people who are ex- who have expertise in charting, you know, the different charts, the different datums, those kinds of things. People that are experts in hydrodynamic modeling, which that's actually my background. And as far as the people that are involved, just the actual, their actual background, I have degrees in physics and engineering. We have our visualization guy is a mechanical engineer. Another lady, she's a mathematician and computer scientist. Then three other civil engineers and the naval architect we hired actually has a background in aerospace and mechanical. One of your success stories involves a study of the Long Beach port in California. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So what what happened there, the Corps instituted smart planning some time back. And so it limited the amount of time and money that could be spent in the feasibility phase of a project. And what is smart planning? It means that they're going to look at the feasibility of a project. Do we have a project? It's usually determined on the BC ratio, the benefit cost, mm-hmm. which means the benefit has to be more than the cost. But it was because feasibility studies were taking so long. You know, when they did that, a lot of districts decided, well, we're going to move smart planning to the design phase, which is the next phase after feasibility. But they're not getting any benefit from, them, from our expertise at all. And so we actually shifted to, to come up with a new method to help them and do some, maybe some reduced order type simulation. And so that's what Port of Long Beach was. They came to us with a design, and they wanted to determine whether or not it was feasible. And you had two different pieces of design. One was, you know, in Port of Long Beach, if you look at the layout, you have these two big jetties or breakwaters that serve as an entrance into there. So they protect the rest of the Port of Los Angeles, the Port of Long Beach from, from wave action. Mm-hmm. And so they come through that entrance and then the two pieces are, they either turn to the right and go around Pier J and turn into Pier J. And that's generally with container traffic or they go straight up the channel with um, tanker traffic. And so the first thing we noted was on the Pier J turn, they're bringing these ships. These are the quarter mile long ships of 1,310 feet long. And they kept running the ground because the radius was, was too small. And so we were able to sit down with the designers and just move things around because we're doing reduced order so we can kind of move things without worrying too much about, well, we need to rerun this model or get this ship or what have you. And so we made some changes to the, the radius of that turn and fix it so they could get in and get out. And, and that was the first piece. But the other piece, which was kind of, I guess you'd say, an added benefit, was that Part of what they were doing on that straight section was they were deepening it so they could bring in deeper tankers because the tankers that were calling were, were these really, really deep tankers that couldn't come in. And so they'd sit offshore and they'd send smaller tankers out there to essentially lighter or pull fuel off of that or oil or what have you and bring huh. it in. They said, we want to reduce the number of times we have to make those trips. We'll do a deeper channel. Well, again, we're all in the same room together. And the pilot said, I'm glad you dug a deeper channel. We're not going to use that with the deeper ship. And the designer's like, well, why? And they rolled the nautical, nautical chart out and said, see those two little notches in the channel? Those notches are essentially a bottleneck for us. And if you give us a deeper ship, it's not going to handle as well. And we could actually bump up against one of those notches and cut open a ship. And because we had already worked on the benefit-cost ratio and they had a really good one, they, they had some room to work with, yeah. they said, oh, yeah, that's an easy day. We'll chop those little notches off. And now we walk away with a design. The pilot said, yeah, we'll use that. We'll use it the way you intended. That's where just having everybody in the room together, like you said, really makes an impact. And and I think I've heard you talk about it before where, I mean, all these discussions were happening pretty quick. It's a discussion in the afternoon, and then some of my staff stay late. 
and then we're testing the next day. Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been such a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Glad to. I, mean, I, I love my job, so I like talking about it. So every opportunity to get to talk about it, I will. Yeah, good to have you, Keith. Arctic Ship Simulator allows engineers and ship pilots to evaluate channel designs in order to identify problems and test modifications before they become safety issues. With the ability to accurately portray the effects of wind, waves, currents, and other ships, Arctic can simulate ports, harbors, inland waterways, and other maritime environments. Arctic Simulator can also be used by the armed forces to plan and train for amphibious operations around the world. Arctic is offering a special webinar on June 23rd for members of the U.S. military to learn more about the ship simulator's capabilities to solve tough challenges. Email erdc-pevb at usace.army.mil to register or for more information. You can also find that email address in our show notes. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Erdic on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Erdic podcast in all major podcast players. Visit powerofurticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast@usace.army.mil. at That's all for today's episode. We'll see you next time.